Welcome to our IntroList podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies and whatnot, and we normally have a witty intro, but alas, this is 2012, the end of the world, according to the mind calendar, and we are running for our lives with John Cusack in the aptly named 2012 movie that did not come out in 2012, it came out in 2009. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, as usual, Brett. And me, Christian. Yes, thank you. Welcome back. Christian mentioned we are covering the year 2012. We are still here. It did not end that year on what December, December 21st. 21st. I was going to have a Christmas party that same day, and my friends literally canceled it because they were going. To, they said the streets were going to be crazy, and nothing happened. Yeah, I was at an all-night movie marathon that night. And so we all cheered when midnight arrived and we were still there. KB, how about you? Do you recall that night? I was probably asleep. But the whole thing is <laughs> exactly what hour, you know, would have ended because, you know, central time zone, you know, Greenwich Mean. True. It could have happened at seven o'clock in the morning. You never would have known. That's true. Listeners, you've heard that voice before. KB is back with us. You last heard him on our 2007 episode, which was only five years before the movies we're going to hello, talk about hello. now. Glad to have you back. Thank you. Okay, so 2012. This was the 85th Academy Awards, so kind of a landmark year to some degree, seven years ago. Um. A couple things, some fun facts about these awards. They were hosted by Seth MacFarlane, who I think most people proclaim gave one of the more, I'm not going to say forgettable. I'm just going to say one of the worst hosting jobs probably in recent Academy history. Having, having rewatched the ceremony in full <laughs> on YouTube, he was very annoying. I don't think... I. I don't think yeah. I remember like recent history where the host is constantly there because he was very much constantly there introducing like the next nominees. And I was like, isn't there an announcer for this? I think they had more skits for him and then they just started cutting it and saying, just go out and introduce somebody. Or at least they gave that impression when you first saw it. Yeah, I watched his opening intro in preparation for this, and I was just struck by, like, I forgot how awkward he was. Like, this guy is apparently not a comedian, but this comedy connoisseur. He's the family guy person. He had just released Ted, which was a huge hit that summer. And he's just, he's not very funny. And he keeps, like, he'll say this joke, then he'll, like, wait for the response and it'll come a little bit delayed because people were like, oh. And, like, and shall we for not that? forget uh, the okay. infamous we saw your boobs moment of the Academy Awards. What was so, like, on top of the song itself and just how messed up and awkward that is, the fact that they used, like, footage from other award shows of actress reactions along with it was just like I will say he tasteless. had one great joke about Harvey Weinstein and people needing but... to avoid him and I was like this is very very scary that he knew something well you were you were told later on that they people kind of had like you know 
whispers about Weinstein and all that, you know, like Hollywood stories kind of thing. So it was kind of like him saying that kind of brought it to light, but people just took it as something in passing unless they were in the know and those in the know were like, ooh, but then, you know, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, exactly. He also had the joke about Lincoln. He said, like, Daniel Day-Lewis got into the president's head like nobody since John Wilkes Booth. Oh, please. And I don't the crowd get why was people like, do that. Like, it's so long like, ago. Oh, too soon. <laughs> That's our Gone with the Wind episode. <laughs> yeah, um, Seth MacFarlane, not the greatest host. But this was the first time that they actually adopted the term the Oscars um, rather than the Academy Awards, like on their hmm. official marketing and whatnot. I never thought about that. That I saw. Which is kind of interesting. Um, we had the sixth tie in Oscar history with sound editing. I remember one thing that I remember both from that year and looking back was the ages of the people in the best actress category. Um, you had Jennifer Lawrence, the winner, who was only like 22 or 23 at the time. Emmanuel Riva, who was like the oldest nominee in the category's history at 85. And then Quivenjane Wallace, who was only nine. It was the like, youngest nominee. What were you doing at nine years old? Like, you're probably sniffing glue or something. Here she is getting an Academy Award nomination, like, resume. Where'd she go? Where'd Quivenjane Wallace go, though? That was something I was going to bring up because she was in Annie, the remake. Um, and then after that, I don't recall her being in anything else. Kavenjane, come back or stay in school. I don't know. She's probably in school. Could be. Um, it was a celebration of musicals with Les Miserables being nominated. Um, I recall Michelle Obama presented Best Actress, or sorry, Best Picture to Argo from the White House. Can I just, alongside, can I go back on something there? Yeah, totally. in a celebration of musicals, they had a performance from Catherine Zeta Jones doing her All That Jazz from Chicago routine. And they also brought out the four leads of Chicago in one of the most like awkwardest things ever because none of them wanted to read the winner of whatever they were doing. And they also had uh... Shirley Basie come out and sing Goldfinger because James Bond had a 50th little special there. Um, Barbara Streisand came back. To do her thing, uh, I think Jennifer Hudson might have did something because Dreamgirls. But I mean, to say it was like a celebration of musicals and they only like highlighted three musicals, it's like not really a celebration, but okay. Yeah, that's awkward. Uh, Kate, uh, no, Christian, you have something here about Casey Channel 9? Oh, yes, the horror. So, like, the the, when the show ended, normally the host will be like, that's all we got for tonight, folks. Good night. Right? But not Seth. He said, that's all we got. That's all we got for right now, but we'll be right back after this commercial. And people are like, wait, what? Channel 9, our local channel here in Kansas City, was like, well, I guess it's over. So they literally started the news. When in reality, Seth and Kristen Chenoweth came out and did a little duet of, like, Here's to the losers, bless their souls. And again, very awkward moment because why are you cutting to commercial and then coming back? Those people in that damn audience want to leave. You know, I think our local news station in Syracuse, Kansas, 
not Syracuse, I guess it would be Wichita. I think they did the same thing because I have no memory of that. Right? And then Twitter was like a thing, but not as prevalent as it's today. And I had to go on there and understand what the heck was happening. And there was like a video of the song moment. And I didn't get to see it for like a couple days later. But I mean, it wasn't anything like impressive or anything, but I wanted to finish the damn show. Right. Interesting. How about we move right into our Best Picture nominees of this year? We had nine that were nominated this year. Um, This was what the second year of the five to ten nomination range, which is kind of ridiculous. They didn't want to go with ten, so they went with nine, whatever. Skyfall is crying somewhere. Um, Yeah, Christian, would you like to lead us into our first film? We. See what I did Go there? See what I did there? I don't think Preg got that. But I, I totally did. The first movie that we will be talking about is Amour. 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 From France. Directed by, I'm going to butcher this name. It's pro- it looks like Michael Haneke, but it's probably pronounced. I think it's. Go ahead. Mikhail. Mikhail. Mikhail Haneke. See, I've always just said Michael Haneke because. That's my American ignorance. <laughs> anyway, the film is about an elderly couple, Anne, played by Emmanuel Riva, and her husband, Georges, uh, played by Jean-Louis Trin- Trin- Um, Yeah, so yeah, again, know. they're an elderly couple. They live in an apartment. The film is basically set in the apartment itself, which is if you read a fun fact about it, the apartment was all constructed. It is not a real place. It's very cool. Anyway, Anne one day suffers a stroke. The scene itself, you would think if it's a stroke scene, it's like a very painful scene, but it's a silent stroke, which means that she literally just sits there, stares off into space, and the stroke occurs. And that is, the, of course, the catalyst for the rest of the film, which is about George basically taking care of her, as he hopes she gets better, but she gets worse. They have a daughter as well, played by uh, this unknown actress called, uh, I think it was Isabelle Huppert. Never heard of her before. And again, it's just about taking care of her and sort of deciding what comes next when their lives are literally changed by this stroke that gets much, much worse than they ever expected. It won, I believe, the Palme d'Or, at uh, the Cannes Film Festival, mm-hmm. won Best International Film at the Oscars, back then Best Foreign Language Feature, nominated for Best Picture, Director, Original Screenplay, and Emmanuel Riva, who got Best Actress. And I think it is a very sad and tough movie to watch. But at the same time, that amour, which is love in French, and a like literally every other language you say it more is love. It comes through a lot and it's determining like how much will you, like what will you do for love when the other person is like quite literally at death's door. Yeah. Merci. Very nice. Oh, and if you didn't get it, it's in French. (laughs) Yeah. Foreign film nominated for foreign language film nominated for best picture. Um, which is kind of cool. 
it is a tough film to watch and yet i think i've seen it three times um i won't say that i enjoy watching it but because it's not one of those films that i don't think you're like meant to enjoy but i just i really get something out of it it's like a dark enjoyment do you guys ever get that feeling when you're watching a movie and you you don't like what you see on screen but you just eat it up and kind of take in the craft behind it that yeah schindler's list perfect example um that is basically this movie for me um it was really when i first watched this i was like beginning first year in college as a film student and this was part of my introduction to those movies that are honestly more popular among um places outside of the united states which are kind of unrelenting and presenting situations where there is not like a bright side to things really um and if so it is very subtle like it is here um yeah great performance from emmanuel riva um i really think i don't know his name was it jean louis yeah Trintinot. yeah i think he is really underrated here in fact i think if i was to pick one performance that really stood out for me it would probably be his thank you because i would say the same thing okay so there you go because like obviously you have emmanuel riva her character is the one who is really taking on this sickness but the film also really touches on the husband's interaction with it as well yeah and like how it tests him how it tests his loyalty and his love to her i mean he's the main character here watching it reminded me of away from her which i believe we discussed for the 2007 episode because it's the same thing like the husband has more of the meteor role And the wife is sort of sidelined, but she still has like her own thing going on, her own personal issues. Right. KB, what do you think? When I first watched this um, back in 2012, you know, getting ready for Oscar season and everything, and the credits started to roll, I said to myself two things. I said, one, this would make an awesome play, like a Broadway play or something, because um, as you mentioned, it pretty much takes place in their apartment. Um, You know, the green screen backgrounds that you really can't tell until you uh, get some behind the scenes information about it really could just be landscapes that are made for various scenes. Um, The other thing I said to myself is that this is so good that I never want to see it again. It's like, (laughs) it's a difficult watch. And, but at the same time, it's done so well that you appreciate the the art of it, but at the same time, it it wrenches at you. And, you know, from a disturbing act point of view, that's not really at the end, but really the descent of, you know, the one person after a stroke and the love that is expressed to take care of them. So thank you for making me watch it again because um it reminded me of the great art that it is and yeah it really reinforced the fact that i really never want to see it again yeah i you know i think like if i were to think 
okay, movies that would define what I think of when I hear the word love. Obviously this one, because the title is literally translated to love. Haha. But really like it's saying a lot about it that not a lot of films do in a similar, similar way. I don't think in that it's testing the limits of love Mm -hmm. in a way that is much different than like a rom-com where like a fight breaks out or something like that. It's very, it's much more subtle, especially because, you know, Reva's character doesn't get to speak for a lot of the film. You know, she loses the ability to speak. And so it's not just reflected in their dialogue, which is fantastic, but in their mannerisms and their actions and what you've both mentioned so far, the production design. Um, Katie, you mentioned that this would make a great play. Thing I often run to with movies like this is that are they too fenced in? You know, do I feel like I'm watching a filmed play rather than a movie? I didn't get that here. And I think it is because of how they designed that apartment. It's like just the layout of it. It's the CDs they have up on their walls. It's the piano. You can tell that these people have lived here and built a life here for. Yeah. You say fenced in. And I think of an actual um, play that became a movie being 12 angry men, which once again, you feel fenced in that room. But the whole thing is, it just plays out so well that it doesn't need to go anywhere. You don't need to have them having a dialogue, walking down yeah. the street, coming back from the doctor or anything. And you see that. You see their interaction with neighbors. You see them coming in and out the door. But there's nothing outside of that apartment. So like you're seeing, you see the history of the apartment and their love. But at the same time, there's a lot of contrast in the movie that I really appreciate it. So, for example, um, you're, you're known to me to know that they're music teachers, retired music teachers. And there's little to no music in the soundtrack or anything like that. Even in the closing credits, zero music, just roll credits. So little artistic things like that really adds to the movie and makes you realize what a nice artistic piece it is. I just wish this movie was on Criterion. I could see that being a Criterion release. Like, I'm surprised it's not yet. I am too. I really am. Um, with this being the winner of what was at the time foreign language film is now being changed to best international film. Um, did, have either of you so- seen a film from another language from this year that might contend with this or uh, was maybe even nominated? We, I've seen, what was it called? It wasn't this year. <laughs> Rust and Bone. Which I don't know if it would have oh, qualified because Bone. they're both from France, Belgium region. But, yeah. Right. But, you know, this was a... Amour was a... Oh, Austria you know. okay, so maybe it would have. I've also seen yeah. No from Chile. I mean, I would still go with yes. more. Yeah, I saw Contiki, um, which was a, I don't want to say a remake, but the documentary was previously an award winner. Um, and yeah, more definitely is the winner here. 
it's always nice too to see some. Oh yeah, I've also go ahead. Okay. Oh, I was just gonna say go it's it. always nice it. to see something win like the Palme d'Or and get so much high praise, and then get nominated for best foreign film and then actually win. Because there's so many movies where like this is gonna win like best foreign film, and then it's like eh, second thought, like this actually went all the way. Yeah. Yeah, I saw no from that year as well. Um, and then I also saw Holy Motors, which also French. Um, let's just say would not recommend, but it is very weird. So, yeah, Amor would definitely be my winner. For um, that I just want to well. point out because you have here in little fun facts. Riva is the oldest nominee for Best Leading Actress, which we've said. She is also the oldest person to win a BAFTA, which is the British Academy Award. And I actually remember watching the BAFTAs of that year and being very shocked that she won over, I guess in this case, Jennifer Lawrence. But at the same time, I'm like, well, this is the BAFTAs. And they have their own bias of like British slash foreign actresses. So makes sense. I think at the time the race was like, I mean, Lawrence was the yeah. front runner, but Jessica Chastain was in there for Zero Dark Thirty, which we'll get to as well. But I think at that point there were a few here and there who were like, maybe they'll reward Emmanuel since she's eighty five and this is might be her last chance. That did not happen, but good win for her. Yeah, um, it also won Best Film at the European Film Awards. National Society of Film Critics gave it Best Film and the Caesar Awards, which are like the Bonjour. French Academy Awards. Any other thoughts on Amour before we move on to our second Best Picture nominee? I have none. Except I will say that watching it, it because I've seen it twice, it's one of the more... If you don't like foreign films, I would put it in a list of foreign films that are very easy to watch again the subject matter is like super hard but mm. with a lot of minimal dialogue in it and a lot more action and just like thought i mean it's something very very easy to watch anybody can watch it and it keeps you pretty much entertained with what happens next yeah totally i agree okay our next film is kind of another little film that could very much an indie film from that year. It is beasts of the Southern wild. This was directed by Ben Zeitlin. Um, it is the story of a little girl named hush puppy. She says she's a little hush puppy who lived with her daddy in the bathtub. That's kind of her did line. That so the well, movie. the bathtub. I know, right? Boom. Um, the bathtub is a location in Louisiana, um, fictional location for the film, but it is kind of like separated from the rest of society civilization. It's people that are definitely, um, in poverty, but are basically making the most of what they have there. Um, it's an area that constantly floods being in Louisiana, um, they're separated from society by this like actual wall in some ways. Um, although they do have access through other entryways. And I, it's a very hard film to explain. The plot is basically we follow hush puppy. She's um, 
supposed to be six years old. She's played by Quivenjane Wallace, who did receive that Oscar nomination we mentioned earlier. And, you know, her father is dying from an illness that she's not aware of. She is kind of in the search for her mother who left when she was very young. Um, well, at the same time, the polar ice caps are, I should say, yeah, they are um, melting. And so it is releasing these wild, giant hog-like beasts um, who are making their way towards the bathtub, Louisiana. And so you've got that going on while all of her personal explorations are coming on. I've said that, like, this is the most existential film ever in which the lead actress is a six-year-old. Um, may not be true. I don't know. At least that I've seen. It received four nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. One thing that I recall from this film that year is that Ben Zeitlin getting in there, getting the Best Director nomination was a pretty big surprise. Um, not because people thought that he didn't deserve it, but because two people that weren't nominated were Ben Affleck and Catherine Bigelow. Um they were supposed to be nominated. They didn't get in. That's a whole other story that we'll get to. But I kind of remember that being the narrative as well. Um, but yeah, what did you all think of this movie? Christian, what do you think? Um, I like this movie. Like. I like the magical realism of it because it definitely has that going for it. I love the colors of it because it, it's very, I mean, it's dark, but it gets the little spurts of brightness Evangeline Wallace is so damn cute in this movie. Um, yeah. I don't know. As a child actress, because I know Brett has opinions over child actors. That's a podcast for another day. Uh, she is mm-hmm. very good. Her nomination is fine. The Best Picture nomination is also fine. I remember just being shocked, mostly because I didn't know what the heck this movie was. I wasn't like out to watch them all this year. and I mean, I eventually watched it. But... I don't know. It's it's not a for me anyway. It wasn't particularly memorable. I I'm not like gaga over it or anything. But you have here that a, President Obama called it spectacular. Okay, Barack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's cute, but watch it again when I've seen it twice. Oh, I'm good. I own it for I own it for some reason. I don't know why, but. I do too. I think I got it at a book fair. So it was there. Might as well. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It's it's a okay movie. Um, I think I gave it like three stars. Um, two, two reasons that it, like, the Best Picture nomination surprised me was, one, that um, being an independent movie like this and, you know, really outside of Kubinjane, it's not a well-acted movie to me, but also it was after appearing at Sundance in January, it was released in the summer. And we all know that summer movies usually don't get Oscar nominations. So with those two things going for it, I was really, really surprised to see it get uh, Oscar nominations, especially the big one. Um, like I said, it's, it's okay for me as well. Um, the story is unique, which I have to give it credit for that because 
we definitely need more unique stories. And I credit uh, Fox Searchlight for even bringing that to a foray after Sundance. But um, to say it's one that I go back to or I don't own it <laughs> like you guys, but to say I go back to it uh, for the movie itself, the I think the thing that gets me about it that really uh, is special is like what Christian was saying about that magic element to it. It takes you into the mind of a six-year-old and reminds you, you know, despite this hard living that she has around her, that she's still six. And that means there's, you know, spectacular in her life. Mm-hmm. So she hears this history lesson yeah. and it becomes a part of her realism, even though to everyone around her, it may seem magical. So I was just curious, like leading up to the Academy Awards and I was looking at all the awards it was nominated for. It was, I mean, other than it won a few um, Cannes Film Festival awards, particularly Brett, you have the camera door. Yeah, camera is that's that was, the best the best first feature. Okay, yeah. yeah. So there's that. So that was its big thing, but it w- did win slash get nominated for a lot of critics awards. Uh, won best cinematography for IFC awards. Won best young actress at Critics Choice, but like BAFTA, Golden Globes, again with the surprise nomination, didn't get into like the precursors leading up to all of this. And then come Oscar nomination Tuesday, four awards, four nominations. And that's definitely something you might want to explore in the future, how certain film festivals like Sundance or, you know, any of the larger ones, how they influence Oscar voters later on in the year or the following year, because you could have a film that is big, at these uh, film festivals and then go unheard until they're picked up by a distributor and then unheard again until it's Oscar season. And I think this is a great example of that. And I imagine like Fox Searchlight had to have campaigned the hell out of this movie. Oh, of course. And I, because there's no way it gets anything otherwise. Um, I imagine a lot of that was centered around Covention yeah. and Wallace. You know, at the time, like it was a little different for me. I was surprised by its nomination, but I also, I don't think I was surprised as some other people might have been because um, I didn't. I don't think I mentioned it yet today, but I mentioned it in previous podcasts. This was my first year of like really getting into the Oscars and starting to follow them, and so I was used to not recognizing some of the films I got nominated. You know, I I was in a town of eighteen hundred people. So we didn't get those movies. You know, we got the blockbusters. Unfortunately, that's about all we got. That also explains why I own the DVD of this, because it's nominated for Best Picture. You know, renting movies online wasn't a huge thing quite yet, at least for me. And so I had to travel, get it at Hastings. Oh, so Hastings. I could watch it. Um, yeah, rest in peace. I think I got it used at Hastings. So like somebody like watched it and then immediately turned it. In. <laughs> um, I do think I, I definitely got a lot more out of it during this watch. Um, it's very magical as you say, but also so naturalistic. I'm just really fascinated by the bathtub 
um, because you see it and it's it's pretty dirty. Um, the people there are living in poverty, as I mentioned. But in other ways, it's almost a little like I don't want to say utopia, obviously, but it, there is nothing it's utopia the people for the people there. who live there. Yeah, yeah. Like there aren't many like disagreements. There's not like person to person violence that we see. Like the violence in the yeah. film comes from nature. Everybody helps everybody out. Especially yeah. and they look upon exactly. society as, you know, negative negative uh, aspects of life. And I like you said exactly. the bathtub is a fictional place, but like that region itself is real in Louisiana. If you go south of New Orleans, or excuse me, New Orleans, if you go south of there, there are people who live in that part where it is mostly swamp, and they live on the houseboats or wherever they have houses down there. I kind of saw parallels between like, you know, this place, there's a scene in this film where there's a huge storm, it rains like crazy, their, their village completely floods. And it was really interesting to see the parallels between that and Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina happening there, what, seven years earlier? Um, and how much the criticism about that is how these poor neighborhoods, uh, primi- primarily with people of color, did not receive the support and the um, rescue services that they needed, kind of like these people here. And so I thought, thought that was a pretty interesting reflection Um that I imagine was at least somewhat intentional. Yeah. And then they're seen as antagonists in the movie. Exactly. And I actually was uh, moved to think that it was Katrina, even though they didn't put a name to mm. it, that it was um, the whole episode with Katrina. But, you know, unless somebody has a screenplay, we don't know. Yeah, true. And once again, um, Christian mentioned my child actor thing you know i'm i'm a little more critical sometimes most people are probably for certain performances but i think wallace is a revelation here honestly um one of my favorite child actor performances because i think a lot of my favorite child actor performances or a lot of them i guess i would say is that they're taking on these huge roles and these issues but you can also get their sense it's a very natural performance i would Um, say Yes. And I mean, Zeitland used mostly yeah. non-professional actors for this film. And I think that's pretty um, a remarkable choice Because, I well. mean, now Kavengene is a, like a star herself. But at this time, you would think that she's a girl and they're just saying, okay, go out there and do your thing and we'll just film you. Like, say yeah, whatever you want, exactly. do whatever you want. Or we'll have the camera on you. That's definitely what it feels like. Now imagine like. there's giant hogs. What is it, 30 to 50 feral hogs? Did you did you guys take any meaning from the hogs? Like, did you kind of narrow down what they represent? Because that's that's a point for me that I'm still thinking about. Yeah, that I'm still I really, I forgot to search it wrong. after because I'm always like, the meaning of whatever. But no, I didn't even think about it. Like, other than it being like, you know, to quote Beanie Feldstein, the titular role. again it's the magical realism because there's not going to be these giant hogs and by giant hogs they're not like they come up to her chest or anything they're like 
massive elephant-sized hogs. So yeah, I imagine. I thought part of it might be like dealing with fear, especially for Hush Puppy, because she approaches them and like stands up to them, and just, all she says is something like, "I got to take care of mine now," or something like that, and just walks on. And I. I thought, you know, maybe this is like this barrier that she's facing. This is part of her reaching a new level of maturity um, and whatnot. But uh, this was based on a one-act play. It actually made $12.7 million um, at the domestic box office, which is, I think, pretty good um, for a film like this. And so I wouldn't say it's a popular film, but a nice little indie. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think I gave it four stars out of five. Can I introduce this next one? But you do the introduction, but I do the introduction to the introduction. Yes, go for it. And now Brett is going to curse through this entire introduction using Quentin Tarantino's famous, like mother effing slang and go. (laughs) I can't live up to those expectations. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I need I need a script in front of me. I need a Tarantino script. Actually, no, I don't. I don't want to read off a Tarantino script right now. Um, but this next film is from Quentin yes. Tarantino. <laughs> it is what was this? His eighth feature film? No, seventh. Yeah. Anyway, his seventh film, Django Unchained. Jingle. There you go. With a theme song from the original 1960 version. Django Unchained is the story of Django Freeman, who is played by Jamie Foxx. He is um, a slave in the 1850s, I believe. Um, 1850s Texas, who is obtained by Dr. King Schultz, who is played by Christoph Waltz, who is a bounty hunter. He is looking for someone named the Brittle Brothers, and he recruits Django um, because Django knows who they are. They go off, they complete this mission, and we find out that Django actually has a wife who is enslaved at a place called Candyland, which is run by Calvin Candy, who is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. So they go out, they would like to rescue Django's wife, who's played by Kerry Washington, But Dr. Schultz says, let's take the winner. You can bounty hunt with me. You can have your freedom. But we will um, build up some money, and then we can go get your wife. So they do that. Um, They build this elaborate scheme to kind of break into Candyland through what is referred to in the film as Mandingo fighting, which is where slaves are forced to basically fight each other to the death. Dr. King Schultz poses as this guy who wants to get into the game. Django plays a um, Mandingo expert, as they call it. Violence ensues. Um, I'm not going to get in. Tarantino violence ensues. Basically throughout the whole film in this one. It's a very violent film from almost start to finish. Um, Things go awry, of course. This one did win Best Supporting Actor for Christoph Waltz, his second win in, what, four years? Three? Um, It also won Original Screenplay for Quentin Tarantino. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Cinematography, 
best sound editing. And it was also his biggest box office hit as a director. Made so far. Yeah. Once on a time in Hollywood is probably going to beat it. Um, it made 162 million domestic, which is number 15 on the year, and 425 million worldwide. All right, thoughts on this movie? That's it. No, um, I always I don't know why for the life of me I've always said hey, it's an all right movie. I don't really care for it, and then yet, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, this movie's so good. But no, it is a good movie. I think it's one of my favorites of his. Um, definitely inspired by Django from 1966 as you have here which I believe I've seen I wasn't all that impressed with it um definitely inspired by you know spaghetti westerns westerns in general um it's just fun it's just like a damn fun movie it's long but like when is a Tarantino movie I don't really care about length because you know you're probably going to get something you're going to get an exciting ass ending where things will go boom literally and like the cast yep. is great, the actors or the the characters rather are really fun. Leonardo as Calvin Candy is great. A lot of people thought he should have been nominated. I agree. Should have another person who's really great is who not a lot of people talked about Samuel L. Jackson as Candy's house slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot his name, but he Stephen. Steven. Yeah, he obviously he brings a lot of comic yep. relief to the latter half of the film. And it's like, it, it's Samuel being Samuel. He gets to throw around his motherfuckers and some other choice words, <laughs> some other choice Tarantino controversial words, which we can discuss if we want. But yeah, I like the movie. I enjoy it. It's funny. Yeah, I'm with you. It's like not among my favorite Tarantino films not the one I would pick up to rewatch, you know, that's for the Pulp Fictions and the Kill Bills and so forth. But um, a lot of people see Tarantino as having his films, having like all the motifs of, of a Western. So um, I think I'd mentioned this on my letterbox review, you know, outlaws, gunfights, Mexican standoffs, the music. So if you're going to make a spaghetti Western, this is probably his most, authentic because it is a western um it's also the most far-fetched which you know spaghetti westerns tend to be so it was right in line but i enjoyed the editing um and the cinematography of it and Mm -hmm. i mean everyone who was on the screen whether it was fox or christoph waltz dicaprio samuel like you mentioned um don johnson all these different actors coming to play. And just by me mentioning that, you know, you chuckle because that's an effective supporting actor right there because just having a minor, yeah, just having yes. a minor role and not being necessarily memorable, but memorable enough to bring a chuckle to your uh, face. You know, it's great. And, but I'm like, I'm with you, Christian. It's like once it's on, it's like I'm going to watch it because it's fun. It's mm-hmm. a fun movie to watch. It's fun. It's funny. Like, really, like, really got some laughs out of me. There's a scene that, like, I don't know how to take it because it's where the the people, like, Don Johnson's character is looking to get revenge. So he gets this guy to make a bunch of <laughs> Ku Klux Klan-inspired hats. <laughs> and they're all going to ride on their horses and solve And, like, 
he puts it on. He's like, I can't see fucking yeah. shit in this thing. And who, and who else is hilarious. with him in that scene? But Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Great little mm-hmm. cameo appearance. Um, but yeah, the acting, I, this is one of my favorite Leo performances. Not going to lie. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Calvin Candy. I, he, I mean, meme worthy. There's a lot of memes about it, but definitely his appearance here is one of the good ones. Yeah. I mean, Christoph Waltz won the Oscar for best supporting actor. I'm f- okay with that. Um, but I really, I mean, I think Leo I was think more Christoph deserving. Was more lead, um, didn't even co-lead. get the nomination. Yeah, I think he, I think he's more. He, he's more for me. He's more lead than even Jamie Fox. I go back and forth. I think he is when he's in the movie, but he's not. There's like forty minutes of the movie that he's not even. Yeah. In. And so that's from uh, that's probably where they got the supporting from. But also, he had a better chance in supporting than it, it lead, obviously. But. For the first two hours of the film, he definitely feels like the lead character for a lot of it. I will say shout out to one of our listeners, Maddie, if you're listening, because I saw this with her and like immediately after she had a huge obsession with Christoph Waltz. I kind of too. And like, I hope she remembers that because if not, we will, I will trigger her memory. (laughs) This film is pretty controversial, um, which I want to touch on a little bit. Um, this film is obviously inspired by black exploitation films of the 70s. And I found that just like learning more about that and who Tarantino is as a person, I've seen like interviews with him. I think he honestly thinks that those films were intended for him. Yeah. And that appears here, which I find pretty like problematic i'm like dude i get what you're trying to do I'm trying on him but also yeah and i don't know i my problems with him in this film are not him as a director in fact i think he does a pretty magnificent job as a director here as a writer compared to when i first saw this movie i take a lot more issue with some of the what's going on here Especially because he's a white guy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I'll just say it. Is it because he's a white man? Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And so... He's, like, overemphasizing the N-word, like, consistently through this movie, which I get. It's from that era. But I think he's pretty over the top with it. Yeah. Yeah, there was a... um... Well, there is a love of not only spaghetti westerns but black exploitation movies for him growing up, um, having that time working in the video store and having access to all these movies. They spoke to him and they made him into a screenwriter and eventually a director, mm-hmm. as we now know him to be. So, I think it's like his way to pay homage to them as he goes along, but at the same time not being aware of what it also brings about, especially being that he's white doing that to say that it would be better received if he was black is kind of like two faced, but true. Um, Especially (laughs) if you think about besides Django, the other 
movie that it's really inspired by is a 1975 black exploitation movie called Boss N-Word. And to say that those two movies like marry to get Django and Chain, it's kind of artistic in its sense, but I think it would be better delivered from someone else. But I really don't think anyone else would be able to deliver it the way he did because there is such a love affair for those spaghetti westerns and for those black exploitation movies that if it's not him and him borrowing from those movies the way he does, some people will say stealing or ripping off, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have what we have in Unchained. Yeah, I, I definitely like there's there's things going on in this film that are so Tarantino, so Quentin. Like there's it just wouldn't be the same if anybody else did it. I just think there are certain things like most of the dialogue is among the white characters, except for Steven to a degree, but he's like arguably one of the biggest antagonists of the whole movie. Um, Carrie Washington's character, my criticism of the film this time around is that she's kind of wasted in some ways. Um, I mean, she's there most of the time to scream and that's the bulk of what she's given. Um, that being said, like you said, Christian, this film is supremely entertaining and that's what I always get out of a Tarantino film, nearly always. Um, and I do, I enjoy it. I, I love it quite a bit. Um, just not as much this go round as I did when I've watched it in previous times, I guess. Mm-hmm. This did lead to a comic adaptation of Django and Zorro. Which I didn't know about until just now. (laughs) Yeah, which they're they're actually saying that there might be some type of like TV or film adaptation of that in the future because of course there would be. Um, I mean, Robert Rodriguez has El Rey Network and like Robert Rodriguez is Quentin Tarantino's best friend. So I can dig it. I won't watch it, but I can dig it. Yeah. What were your thoughts on the big fight scene at Candyland or the shootout at Candyland? Um, again, with the entertaining entertainment part, because the the best moment is when he's about to shoot Candy's sister and he's like, say goodbye. And she's like, goodbye. And he shoots her. And instead of just like falling to the ground, <laughs> she literally flies backwards <laughs> into like the next universe. When you say Tarantino violence, that's what we're talking like, about. This is, Tarantino violence is, if you get shot by somebody in the Tarantino universe, you're not just going to get shot. Like I just said, you're getting shot into another universe. Like, yes, it's funny. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson gets a good chunk of his comedy in this scene. And like I said, it may or may not end with a bang. But it's like the <laughs> ultimate revenge scene. Yeah, that scene is great. Leo's big scene at the dinner table is pretty phenomenal from an acting perspective. Did did you read the fun facts over him, like actually breaking his hand? Mm -hmm. Like, yep, yeah. And I always watched that for their for not like Leo's reaction, but everybody else's reaction. And everybody is so calm, but I can imagine like after that cut, people were like, "Holy shit, are you okay?" And he just keeps and going. And he is like the onset lawyer. Like, oh, I'm like, oh okay. shit, not again. <laughs> yeah. I honestly, I would hate to be the onset lawyer for a Tarantino movie. 
for anybody who hasn't seen this during the scene, he like shouts and slams his hand on the table onto this it's a skull. Uh, is it a, is it the drinking glass? That oh, actually yes, cuts it's his the drinking hand? glass. Yeah. Yeah. And then like he's bleeding and he's it's actual blood. And, like he's later, he's like pulling pieces of glass out of his cut hand. And this was not the use of fake blood like this. Actually, he actually this cut is his hand Leo's blood. So briefly, I just want to bring up, was this a because we've talked about in the last one, Beast of the Southern Wild. Was this a surprise Best Picture nominee? Mm, I think for me, I'm going to say no. I think, yeah, I think for me at the time it was a no. And mostly because people like Tarantino, who was coming off of Inglorious Bastards, which I mean, I consider that probably, I think it's my favorite. I need to rewatch. But I mean, huge success with that. Christoph Waltz becomes a star after that. This was like uber popular because everybody wanted to see it. You said it made a lot of money. It's his number one box office currently. I mean, it's like yeah. the it's like the one blockbuster, let's say quote unquote blockbuster that will be nominated like every single year. Yeah, I think that's the biggest reason it wasn't a surprise to me is because it was so damn popular. Mm-hmm. I wasn't too surprised at all. Um, I mean, of course, I knew it wasn't going to win. Um, I was a bit surprised by the screenplay win. Yeah, for Tarantino. Um. I mean, he'd been winning screenplay, but... I would have loved him to have won for Bastards instead. But... Yeah, yeah. What did win? Let's see. So Django was nominated and won Amor, Flight, Moonrise Kingdom, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. I would have expected Zero Dark Thirty, honestly. And I would have expected Moonrise Kingdom or Amor. Yeah, or even Amor, because I guess it's just a really heavy category. And, so... and then there's Flight. Oh, yeah. Flight. It's there. (laughs) But anyway, any closing thoughts on Django Unchained? I think that's all I got for it, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) I think my very last thing would be that the soundtrack is pretty awesome. It is. Um, You have the theme song Django, but then you also have like songs by anthony hamilton and there's one by john legend that's really good so check that out too would you like to take our next film yes i would and i even wrote a little 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 ditty for this to introduce this okay is everybody ready i am i dreamed a dream for 25 years that lame is would be adapted And when I got the film I wanted, it was nothing but close-ups and tears. Perfect. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This is Les Miserables, or Les Miserables for you English-speaking people, directed by Tom Hooper, who just came off of the King's Speech winning a few years earlier, based on the celebrated worldwide phenomenon of a musical and also the Victor Hugo novel about not the French Revolution, which many people think it is. It's not the French Revolution. It's another French Revolution. And the man known as Jean Valjean, played by Hugh Jackman, who steals a loaf of bread, who's imprisoned, who's sort of watched very carefully by Javert, Russell Crowe, but then runs away to live a new life, to become a better man, and then interacts with a woman known as Fantine, 
played by Anne Hathaway. She dies. He takes care of her daughter, Cosette, played by Amanda Seyfried. God, there's so many people in this movie. What an ensemble. Who falls for this young revolutionist named Marius Pommercy, played by Eddie Redmayne. And this is all told through song. And by all told through song, it is completely sung through. It's about two and a half hours. This was, like I said, 25 years in the making. When I say like one of the most popular musicals of all time, I mean, it's it recently closed in London after almost 30 years, but only to renovate the theater. So it will be back. So it is one of like the longest running musicals in the world. Um, and again, a very big, and when I say anticipated, I think out of the Best Picture nominees, this was probably the most anticipated just because of the time coming. Um, for me personally, I loved it at first only because I'm like a musical junkie. Over time watching it, it gets very tiresome. It gets very, I will just say, it's a mixed bag for me because I don't like a lot of the people in this movie. Uh, Actors-wise, not character-wise, but the songs are still great. And it's very depressing, as it should be, because it's literally translated to the miserable. So... And in song form, what did you all think? I am not singing. Russell Crowe really cannot sing at all. Thank you. <laughs> I also appreciated. I I really liked it quite a bit when I first saw it when it first came out. Now it's I'll, spoiler alert. This is my least best picture nominee from this year by far. Um, not even really close. It does have its qualities. I will say this, like the sets in this film are gorgeous. Great production design. It's too bad we don't really get to see it. Because he is so obsessed with <laughs> Guess what we do get to see. <laughs> Snot. And sweat. <laughs> and like tears. Tears. <laughs> the problem is not so much with like using close-ups. It's that like Knowing when to like pull out a little bit. Uh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> Unintended. But uh, but also like understanding camera angles and like when it looks like you're trying to be edgy, but you're it's really not. It's not working. You need to like bring it out a little bit. Let us see these beautiful sets. Let us see these musical numbers. I'm getting tired of seeing this close-up of Hugh Jackman's face. Maybe also make everything a little less tan. That too. Like, I don't think there was a moment of blue sky or like, I know it's supposed to be like not a happy show, but right. the same time. I think it was, it was supposed to be like a, a warmth yeah. to it. That was supposed to be like a, a sad warmth if you could have that. Yeah. And, like, I know that the close-ups, too, were used primarily to show off the fact that they are singing live, which I guess was a big deal. I still don't really get how that's a big deal because nowadays everybody's been doing that, Mm -hmm. I guess. But, cool, you can sing live. I guess a lot of people can sing live. The one moment where I thought, like, okay, I get the buzz around this is Anne Hathaway's Oscar-winning song. Yeah. Uh, Not literally, like, won the Oscar 
song like that is a scene that won her best supporting actress yeah that's the reason she won i, I, was I remember seeing that, this but i remember seeing this i went to the free screening of it and i turned to whoever i went with and i was like that's how you win an oscar mm-hmm. just off of that scene alone yeah i i think she was the only redeeming quality of the movie um Personally, I have to say that this was my biggest disappointment of 2012 Mm -hmm. because I I don't remember what movie I went to see that summer, but I remember the teaser trailer and just hearing that song that she won the Oscar for. And I'm like, no way. And for the second half of the year, just waiting for Christmas time for that to come out. And I I don't blame... um, I don't blame Danny uh, Cohen for this, who's the cinematographer. I really blame the director. I, I blame Tom Hooper because we've seen that he can do mass scale and cinematography in the King's Speech. And there's costume and production design in that movie that you can see because it's not focused up on, you know, the actor's faces like they were here. And it, it was from a Broadway musical. Yes, you only had the stage, but even in a stage performance, you're looking to the left, you're looking to the right, you're looking center stage. And with all these close-ups, you didn't have a chance to do that. And the one thing that you do when you take a novel or a screenplay or a Broadway play is you open it up. You don't focus yeah. down. You don't shut the camera down and zoom it on the face. There wasn't hardly any zooms either. And it, it was just so disappointing overall because um, growing up, seeing that as, you know, young teen on Broadway and everything, it was it was an unexpected thing to see it be made into a movie. And I was expecting I was going to so say, so you more. did see it when you lived in New York. Okay. Yes. Nice. Yes. Um, and it's really sad because when you started seeing the names that would be associated with it, like I didn't know Hugh Jackman was a singer at the time, but I was like, okay, they're going to, they're going to pull it off. And just seeing the various actors, um, even looking back now and you see, Oh, Eddie Redmayne and who he is today. um, It's such a disappointment. You know, what's really disappointing about all that is that my opinion, the best performance in this movie aside from Anne Hathaway, is someone that a lot of people might not know, Samantha Barks. Yes. Uh, the yeah, daughter. Who plays yeah. Epony, yes. uh, who plays the daughter of the thieves. Mm-hmm. She, like, for this... She's like Anne Hathaway. Like, they're both on screen for very little time, but they just completely steal the show. Yeah, they, they steal their various acts. Like, Anne Hathaway steals Act 1, and Samantha Banks steals Act Two. Samantha Barks. Barks. Story time. So Samantha Barks plays Eponine in the twenty fifth concert uh, version of this show, which I think is far superior than this. Uh, that's all tea, all shade. And her little story is that she was playing Eponine on the West End in London when Cameron McIntosh came out. Literally a curtain call when the audience is still there and offered her on the spot, the role of Eponine. 
And it's like, talk about like a career change. It's funny because like, while Hooper's direction is so awful at times, in some ways, oh my God. <laughs> I, 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 in some ways it makes those two performances even more impressive for me because like they're yeah. doing this while he is literally invading their space and like just giving it their all. They sound beautiful. Um, so yeah, I guess I can thank him for like making me appreciate their performances more. Like I will say Eddie Redmayne's performance near the end of the film, empty chairs at empty tables when it's just him is very, yeah, very good too. Yeah. I will I really say, think it was just too much for the director to bite off yeah. in this performance. I will say Russell Crowe's performance in almost everything he did in this film was very, very, and I'm saying this lightly, um, bad. Hounding <laughs> is the word I would use. Hounding. It was quite a shock to hear his voice. You're in Hollywood. <laughs> you can find people that sing. You, do, <laughs> you know? Oh. Like, I know they're all about getting, like, the money-making stars, but. Well, let's give it credit. Hair and makeup yes. was good. Uh, we saw that up close a lot. And it sounded, if you ever get a chance to, well, if you saw it in the theater, you you heard how good it sounded. Mm-hmm. And the music throughout is just mm-hmm. beautiful. I mean, not the singing, the music itself is beautiful, so. Those uh, Oscar awards are well-deserved. There is. There's one notable musical score in this that, I mean, if you ever hear the original Broadway cast recording, it's a transition between Jean Valjean like, tearing up his papers and escaping. And in the original Broadway recording, it's like... It's, like, very calm. And this, it's like he tears him up and it's like... And I'm like, yes, this is a nice transition. Um... I want to point out the fact that a song was actually created for the movie specifically. Quote, song. (laughs) Suddenly. It's not a good song. It's it's really not. I'm like, this movie is already too long. Um, You, I think Hooper also has a problem with the difference between recreating a musical and adapting a musical. I think at times he's trying to recreate it too much. And so you got all that going on and then you add another song, which really isn't that great a song that really doesn't also fit the tone of the songs already in the music exactly it does not i mean it's written by the same composers it does not feel like it fits the show yeah it goes back to problems opening up the musical into a major motion Mm -hmm. picture so everyone loved this (laughs) i see (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's like, again, I loved it when it first came out. It's over the years. It's like, I'm noticing the problems now. Yeah. Christian, did you already go over our Oscar wins and nominations for this movie? Okay. So wins supporting actress for Anne Hathaway, who got really criticized after this. Uh, I, I will say she opened her speech by, it came true, referencing to like, I dreamed a dream. And people took mm-hmm. that as like a snotty little move. I don't understand. She's do you remember my book? Haters. Do you remember that? Haters. Do you remember that line in Trainwreck where Amy Schumer is like, stop carrying that trophy around like you're Anne Hathaway at a post Oscar party? I I don't, but like I legit like I never understood the hate towards her. I did I was so I happy either. when she won. 
My parents were so happy when she won because they know her from the Princess Diaries. They're like, she finally won. I knew she'd win someday. Anyway, so again, supporting actress, makeup and hairstyling. I very much agree. Sound mixing. Those were the three wins. Also nominated for picture. Hugh Jackman got his little acting nomination. Suddenly got original song nomination. Costume design. And even though we've been talking that we didn't see a whole lot of it, production design. I will say... It was there. It was there. I will say I, I've actually seen one of the positive reception of this film is Hugh Jackman. I, I I do think he's quite good here. I would disagree with those who say this is his best performance. Um, check out Prisoners as well as Logan. Yeah. That's all I want to say on that. Uh, let's see. It made a nice chunk of change. $149 million domestically. Um, 442 million worldwide again this is like a this is a worldwide phenomenal musical um first musical nominated for best picture since chicago in 2002 2002 that's 10 years and it won the globe for best musical or comedy any closing thoughts on les mis it is les miserables to watch multiple times (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> would agree all right christian you've got our next film oh, as well okay all right this is probably one of the most visually stunning films on the docket it is life of Pi, directed by ang lee uh who directed such films as brokeback mountain crouching tiger hidden dragon both big oscar winners in their time it follows Pi patel who we meet as an older man. He is telling his story to a journalist in Canada. And he tells a story about him or himself and his family growing up in India. And his family runs a local uh, zoo there. They leave India to get a better life in Canada. Very interesting onto why they left. I sort of explored it. It's very complex and uh, Indian government. You can read it if you want. Um, there's a shipwreck that happens halfway through the movie and that causes the ship to go down, Pi to be thrown into a boat with a zebra, a hyena, and a tiger, and later on an orangutan. And they're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, quite literally just hanging out because what else is there to do? Well, when you get these animals together, they do get hungry and eventually most of them go except for Pi, who resorts to getting on a smaller life raft vessel, and the tiger, who he names Richard Parker. And it's sort of their story of survival on the ocean. And I quote unquote the friendship. They have more of like a mutual understanding that they're not gonna probably kill one another. So <laughs> and again, visually appealing. It was made for 3d i didn't get to see it i god i really wish i would have saw this in theaters in 3d because it's so the cgi is stunning um there's moments of again like magical realism there's a carnivorous island involved and there's a there's very deep questions of faith and what's true or not in this story was what Pi told this journalist all true or was it something he just wanted others to believe, to, you know, question what really did happen? 
And again, questions of faith, which are just so deep. I found myself kind of emotional by it all. And meerkats on and the Carnivorous Island. Thoughts? Um, this is magical. This is this is probably one of the most magical movies I've ever seen. And yes, you need to experience it in 3D to get all of the visual magic that there is. Um, this is one of those movies that I wish would be re-released just so I can experience that again. Um, it doesn't take away from the story because, you know, seeing it at home on Blu-ray and DVD and whatever, it's the same effect. But really, the whole story is about that search for faith. I mean, even uh, Pi himself goes through, you know, being a Hin- being a Hindu and going through Christianity and Islam and even the faith that he has with Richard Parker on the boat is a type of religion itself uh, in their little story of being frenemies, as the case may be. Um, everything about this is just great. The story, where it leaves you, you know, I, I always say I'm the jur- journalist and I mm-hmm. choose to believe. Um, I, I think it's a great adaptation as far as opening up, you know, vast contrast of what we were just previously discussing. But um, yeah, there's so much to it and the colors are just rich and I would love to see this like on a 4K with HDR with colors just like jumping off the screen. But yeah, to see it on the big screen in 3D again would be great too. And now for a negative review of Life of Pi. Hold on. Hold on. No, full disclosure here. I gave this film four stars out of five. Just so we can get that out of the way. Um, Mm -hmm. This was the first time I've seen it. This is the only film from this lineup that I had not seen yet. And Brett has a famous saying about Life of I mean, Pi okay. that... I'm just going to tell this story from Let my side. So I was I was in a Twitter conversation one time and somebody had mentioned how like Life of Pi was like, for sure, if Argo wasn't going to win, it was going to be Life of Pi. And that really struck me because I have never thought that way. Um, I could see why one would because... Ang Lee won Best Director at One Cinematography. Um, but I just never thought of it in that way. And I personally have not heard much discussion of it since it came out. Um, so I texted Christian. I'm like, isn't it interesting that like nobody talks about Life of Pi? That was, I, I will admit, that was, that was the wrong way to say that. Because <laughs> there are people who talk about Life of Pi. <laughs> For me, it's more interesting in that like this was like the big winner of the night aside from Argo winning Best Picture. This had four wins. It was the most. It had the second most nominations with 11. But I feel like I just I don't encounter it much on like, I don't know, social media as much as something like, say, Mad Max Fury Road or La La Land or Gravity or these other like visual films that really won their night at the Academy Awards, even though they didn't win Best Picture, comparatively. That has nothing to do with the quality of the film. Um, Just interesting perspective on reflection on it, I guess. But how did you... Now, what did you think of the film? Oh, yeah. Well, okay, so my actual thoughts on the film. um, I thought it was, like, 
clearly the best visual effects of the year. Um, I, I, in fact, I don't think the visual effects team maybe gets enough credit for this. Um, they might be a little overshadowed by like Ang Lee's direction and the cinematography, but this film just does not work for me if the visual effects are not there. Mm -hmm. I've recently discovered that I don't, I can't think of many film genres that I don't normally like. I think the survival films are one of them though. You know, I did not like all this loss with Robert Redford. I did not like Everest. Um, I'm sure there are others there that I could bring up. They just don't click with me. Wilson, the and volleyball so, is going to kill you. I, I've never seen Castaway. So. Oh my God. And Shailene Woodley. And oh, Shailene Woodley in a drift. A drift. But I, I think that's like, I just, <laughs> they don't appeal to me. But this one did. It really works. And the, the visuals are really the biggest reason why. I can, um, I can understand that too. And along with visuals, I, there's a real theme in this movie that's not just survival. That's what I want to touch on. Go ahead. Because I felt those themes like with religion and faith and what that all means. I don't know if I found them as deep as the two of you did. Like I, the overall message I got from it was not totally different from a lot of other things I've seen talking about faith. And aside from like, obviously the shitty God's not dead movies and whatnot. Um, I don't know that, that one, I felt them and I really appreciated them, but I felt that they could have been honestly a little bit more deeper and unique, if that makes sense. Well, I think more than, and here we go, this is like dissecting it, more than faith and religion, it's mm -hmm. about belief. Mm -hmm. And the whole allegory of the tiger and the boat and everything is really a story of belief. That's why I say um, that line about I choose to believe because it doesn't matter if the story is true. It doesn't matter if it's Christianity, Hinduism, or whatever. It's about belief. And I think that's what, at least in the book, that's what they try to get across. And I think that's what they try to do here So you've as read well. the book. See, I'm also like... Yeah, KB, have you read it? Yeah. Christian, have you? I have not. I own it, but I, I really want to read it. I've heard it's great. Mm -hmm. Um... I think like my thing is like, okay, so like the religion really doesn't matter. The faith doesn't really matter. It's the belief. But does the belief even matter that much either? I mean, at the end of the day, he's here. He survived. You know, whatever way he had of doing that, are we ever going to really know the complete answer? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I definitely do feel that though, that I enjoy the belief factor. Like, do you believe this more than any of the other themes that popped up throughout the movie? Yeah. And the testing, too, of the beliefs. You must also put that. And it almost sounds like you're talking about religion. If someone walked into the room and heard the three of us talking right now, it could be, you know, assumed that we're talking about a certain religion. And I think that's how it keeps tying back to it. But just to move on from that, another thing that I really appreciated from this, and it was probably what Les Mis wanted to be, minus the singing was mm -hmm. the great mm -hmm. score in this movie um i think i think it won a golden globe for the score if i remember correctly. won the oscar too okay so there you go great example of a great score as well 
which is really impressive because I personally thought yeah. there were a number of really great scores this year outside of like the Oscar heavy films even. Um, let's see. I want to bring up a point about Ang Lee, but I want to save it for the Argo discussion. Oh, talking about director, can you imagine if this was uh, directed by Kiran like they originally wanted? Oh my gosh, I was thinking about that too. Or M. Night Shyamalan as well. Yeah, he would have he yeah. would have had some twists at the end that would have thrown I was always so. dead on the boat. <laughs> yeah. Shyamalan would have got rid of the belief factor. He would have actually done like a flashback to show that, oh, none of this was actually true. Yeah. Pi killed these people. That's what yeah. Shyamalan would have done. Like all of a sudden, it was like everyone who was on the boat that made it off, it was like one by one killed by <laughs> Pi. <Pi>, so. <laughs> no, but um, instead of Children of Men, which I'm glad he did, if he did Life of Pi, this would have been something different but i i think by bringing in ang lee and by bringing in was it the wexa team that did this for the visual effects mm, i'm not sure but anyway whoever handled visual effects by bringing in that combination was excellent um for the wins again brett said it was the biggest winner of the night ang lee one director also in cinematography, visual effects, well-deserved. Really, they're all well-deserved here. And original score. It was nominated for an additional seven, including picture, adapted screenplay, production design, which is always interesting how CGI, totally cgi movies are nominated for that. Look at you, Avatar. Uh, film editing, sound editing, sound mixing, and original song for Pi's Lullaby, which I'm not entirely sure what that is. Assume it's in the it's in the credits somewhere. Yeah, I yeah, I don't recall it. So we're shelving the director discussion for now. Oh yes, because I have opinions. I have, I have comparisons to both Lincoln and Argo. So ooh, this is tasty. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, anything else on Life of Pi? Obama called it an elegant proof of God. There you well, have there it. you go. Most times you put Roger Ebert said. This time it's like Obama said. Yeah, what's with all these Obama quotes? <laughs> he was having himself a good Thanks. time in 2012. He got reelected. <laughs> saw yeah. some movies. Yeah. He had a few viewings in the White House screening room. Dude. But this was like a thing he did. Like he, every year he still does it. He lists like his top films, his top songs, his top albums, his top books. Like he's got nothing else to do. <laughs> Okay, Christian, do you want to go ahead and introduce our next film, three in a row for you? Oh, not three in a row. More like four score and seven years ago. Oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So we're talking about Lincoln, who said that famous line. Lincoln, directed by my idol, Mr. Steven Spielberg, tells the story of our nation's 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, not so much a biopic as it is a pivotal moment in Lincoln's uh, presidential career, both facing the Civil War on the home front and in the Union, the passing of the 13th Amendment, which would uh, officially free the slaves. And the film itself is pretty much about those two things, his own conflicting battles with himself, He's very, Lincoln was a very melancholic president. Today we would look at him as like a depressed man. 
Uh, you can definitely tell. Daniel Day-Lewis, who he's mentioned in 2007 podcast with There Will Be Blood, comes back and wins another Best Acting Award for playing Lincoln. My God. Talk about a performance. We'll get to that in our discussion. But that is simply the mm-hmm. plot of Lincoln. Go on. Go forth, um, man. That was my Lincoln impression, I guess. Good job. <laughs> I remember, like, people who... Or folks who had, like, were used to other representations of Lincoln. Like, think about um, Henry Fonda in Young Mr. Lincoln. Completely different. Deep voice. I think a lot of people were struck by this Lincoln who actually looks pretty frail and has that high voice, which is as accounts say, historically accurate. Um, obviously, I'm getting into the performance of Daniel Day-Lewis already. I don't know if we want to start there, but hey, why not? Um, Daniel Day-Lewis. Really, not just one of the defining performances of the decade, but I would say one of the defining performances mm-hmm. ever. One thing I often say is that if you're going to portray real people, you you have to take like an extra step to really get to me. You know, it has to be beyond like impersonating them or like, you know, doing an SNL type impersonation of this character, a la Sam Rockwell playing George Bush. But this is like the shining example of that done right. Um, This is historically accurate. (laughs) Historically accurate really makes him feel like a character like Lincoln is so mythic. He is like a giant in history. Um, But Daniel Day-Lewis makes him feel so human, which I think is probably my favorite thing about the whole performance. Like I said, he's very melancholic in this. And it's weird to think that originally Liam Neeson was halfway to getting cast as Lincoln. (laughs) No. I couldn't see, like, I will find you and you will pass my 13th Amendment. Pass the amendment. I have a particular, I have a particular set of skills. Like, yeah, no, this is Daniel Day Lewis. And he gets so well into this performance. And I think I've told this to you, Brett, but like, I honestly forget he's acting. Mm-hmm. Like this is an actor doing a performance. I'm like, this is Lincoln. There's like no footage of Lincoln, but damn it. This is like the <laughs> closest we have. That's Daniel Day Lewis in any role he embodies, especially, um, historical figures it's it's really it starts and it ends with his performance um and the the thing that's crazy about it is that this is a movie that is jam-packed with great performances tons and tons of cameos an early appearance by adam driver mm. um, david oyelowo um Jared Harris. Tommy Lee Jones. Oh my gosh, Tommy Lee Jones in this. Uh, Hal Holbrook, James Spader. The, the great list Sally Field. On and on. And Sally then Field. Like, yeah, you get to the main actors in it with him, like Sally Field and Joseph Gordon-Levitt as his wife and his son. And mm-hmm. they all turn in great performances, but unfortunately they're outshone by DDL because... His performance is just stellar. There's no other way to describe it. And this was, um, like Brett was saying, Life of Pi was the last movie he got to. This was 
the last movie. It took me, oh my gosh, like three years after this was released to see it. I, I haven't seen it until like 2015 or so. And I was just like stupefied. Not so much at the movie. There were times in a movie where it's kind of slow and repetitive. But, you know, when you're trying to get an amendment passed, things get repetitive. Mm. But at the same time, every time he was on the screen, I just wanted to see him act. Mm-hmm. And I stayed with the movie. I, the movie could have been three and a half hours long. I don't know. But anytime Daniel Day-Lewis was on, on screen, I just wanted to see him act. And yeah. he acted his ass off in this. You mentioned all those actors. I just want to make a quick note. Keep in mind, I did not expect to mention Sam Rockwell twice in our mention of Abraham Lincoln. Um, But we always talk about Sam Rockwell playing like these awful racist characters. How about Walton Goggins? That dude is, do you guys know who I'm talking about? Yeah. He, in this, he's a racist, like Django Unchained, Hateful Eight. He was in the show Justified, where he was basically like, <laughs> that's his thing, too. I just, yeah, <laughs> that stuck out to me on this. I'm like, that guy always plays this racist. It's true. I never thought about it, but it's true. <laughs> anyway, um, I just wanted to throw that in talk about So I want to talk about Spielberg's direction here because, again, me idol, the person who made me pretty much fall in love with film like at a very young age i dressed up as him for a book report on famous historical figures i picked steven spielberg uh this is one of his best films i think of this decade he really hasn't made that many but at the time in like you know a good long while because war horse which came out a year before was fine but then you get lincoln and he put so much like heart and soul and effort into this film and wanting to get this story made for like the longest time going as far as saying, Oh, I dressed up in a suit and tie every day. Yeah. I've seen the pictures. It's like nothing to, it's nothing that impressive, but like, I don't know. There's something about this. And also with his cinematographer, who I'm going to butcher the name because I do that. Let's see. Does anybody know a cinematographer? Janice Kaminsky. Thank you. Okay, so they've been literally doing everything together. I do not like the cinematography of early 2000s Spielberg and... Kaminsky. Kaminsky. I love it in this. And I think it's because there's not a whole lot of lens flares. This is probably some of my favorite cinematography in Spielberg film of the later 2000s. For obvious reasons, there's a great shot of Lincoln walking through the army, the battlefield. He removes his top hat. And it's just like, that's the image that sticks with me. The image of him and Mary Todd in the theater talking when she has her little moments. Every scene in Congress, especially that last vote. I mean, it's just perfect. This is like, this is top of Spielberg's game. Again, of like the later half of his career here. Because early stuff is like, again, another podcast for another time. But Spielberg, good shit. I miss you. Where'd you go? West Side Story. Yeah, triumphant with the uh, John Williams music uh, oh. when the amendment is passed. Mm-hmm. It's like, and triumph. Like, uh, John Williams, like, Steve, let me get my French horns. I'll find something to do. That's a really cool scene because that's basically like the climax of the movie. And what's what's really cool about it is that Lincoln cannot do anything in that scene except sit and wait. 
Like he's our main character. We followed him, but ultimately the ultimate scene comes down to something that is completely out of his hands. And there's like a good chunk and of that movie. There's like a good chunk of that movie too, where Lincoln Daniel Day Lewis is like not even in it because we have to focus on Congress itself. Mm-hmm. And because he has no say. That's when you get the scenes with like Tommy Lee Jones that, you know, just takes over as far as top performances with him representing the House of Representatives and uh, James Spader being opposition and everything. Yeah, I will say a few things about the writing, which I thought was pretty awesome. Um, Like KB mentioned, like setting it in this time and writing dialogue that just kept me interested throughout the whole movie. So impressive. I will say, and this is not a huge critique. It's just something I noticed. Um, Like, the Daniel Day performance, Daniel Day Lewis performance is so great, but they make it so baity for him. Like, it's like, here's these congressmen having these just average, you know, um, dialogue in between them. And then, then all of a sudden Lincoln comes, and he's like, let me tell you a story about that. <laughs> Which they all get like, oh my God, not again. I, <laughs> and the stories are great, but it's just like, man, this is just a recurring theme throughout this movie that, works well but is also like there's a lot of bait in there um so again not a huge critique or anything just something that like felt a little bit repetitive at times but yeah um christian did you have our nominations and wins yes 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 okay so obviously daniel day lewis won uh best actor and this also won production design which i agree with the production design is very historically accurate you get a really good glimpse into the, at the time, the White House, which the first time I've noticed that there's a moment where they literally just run into the White House. They run from the street into the White House, into the president's office. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's you get shot today if that was the case. <laughs> like, that's something. Anyway, good, great production design. And then it had 10 nominations. It led with 12, so 12 total. Picture, Spielberg for director, supporting actress for Sally Field, supporting actor for Tommy Lee Jones, Tony Kushner's adapted screenplay, original score by John Williams, sound mixing, cinematography by... Kaminsky. Why can I say that name for some reason? Costume design and film editing. Also made $182 million, which I've always forgotten. I'm always assuming because it's like a historical period piece, it's going to be like $80 million. But no, and I'm assuming people wanted to go see Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, and it's like $182 million later. And Spielberg. And Spielberg. Both of those, as well as you know how many people probably got assigned to write like a review for this for their history class? Would you do Did that? You? maybe that was just my school i don't know it's actually my government class but everybody in my class went to this movie because we got extra credit for writing about it and i was the only one that liked it so there you have it Alrighty, anything else on lincoln meryl streep opened the envelope during the uh what do you call it when they're showing the clips of everybody and it looked like she just knew who already had won because she wasn't showing yes. the almost. She was like, and the also goes to Daniel Day Lewis. And it was like, did she open it? She didn't need. I remember that. Yeah. And then, like, Daniel Day Lewis did like a whole comedy routine. And I'm like, you're kind of funny, Daniel Day Lewis. 
this was though this was like there were a few like shoe-ins this night but that was by far the biggest yeah that was like if this lost hell would freeze over that was a shoe win okay well i finally get to introduce another film one that is very close to my heart and that is silver linings playbook this is directed by david o russell um, who just two years earlier had come off of the fighter um this was based on a novel by matthew quick and we'll get into this a little more but i will say that the film i think exceeds upon it pretty heavily <laughs> this is the story of pat solitano jr who's played by bradley cooper he spent the last eight months in a um psychiatric hospital mental institution in baltimore um, but his mom played by jackie weaver signs him out and he goes back home to philadelphia to kind of rebuild his life um, he suffers from bipolar disorder and so he has this idea that he is going to reconnect with his ex-wife um, what happened is that he caught her with the history teacher that at the school that they both taught at this was after he um, had a delusion that they were trying to embezzle money from the school. And he basically beat the hell out of the history teacher, um, got put in this mental institution as from a deal with the courts. So he's out, welcomed back in by his mother and his father, played by Robert De Niro, and becomes, I'm going to start with acquaintances with Tiffany Maxwell, who is played by Jennifer Lawrence. She also suffers from mental illnesses. I don't know if they explicitly mention it in the film. I don't think they do. They don't. Um, but it's often been implied that she has borderline personality disorder as well as depression. And so she's also, you know, fighting that and coming to terms with it. Her father, her father, her husband was recently killed in a, he was um, hit on the side of the road in a car accident. And so through working with each other, they come up with this deal that Tiffany will secretly get a letter to his ex-wife, Nikki, if Pat agrees to enter a dance competition with her. It's something that she really enjoys and does for therapy, and so she involves him too. And we kind of see as the film goes on that their time together is really beneficial for both of them. It's helping them both move on and recover um, and kind of culminates in this really nice burgeoning relationship um i will say i have noticed a lot of criticisms of this film say that the message behind it is that if you're suffering from mental illnesses all you need to do is find the right person that'll fix everything i don't think that's what the film is saying at all um i think it's more along the lines of discovering the things that help you in making that progress and discovering people who go on that journey with you and the things you do for each other that you might not notice on the surface, because I think it takes Pat quite a while to realize what's going on with this relationship. Um, before I pass it off to you guys, I want to say this is my, th this is a top five all time movie for me. I'll just come out and say it. I love it completely. Um, KB, I'll start with you because I know that you were originally a little weary about this film. And so yeah. what do you think? Um, I don't know. I think I, I wasn't in a good place to watch this movie when it first came out. And I just felt like it was forced, um, not really knowing much about the movie being a book or anything like that. Um, 
but subsequent watches i got not only the the love for it but i started to appreciate it uh, all around i would say but this time that i watched it for the podcast i i really appreciated not only the performances but also the writing of the screenplay it is such a well-written screenplay uh and and then you get to the actors uh both Bradley and Jen do a great job opening up the story and their chemistry seems natural, which is hard to say in a lot of uh, movies where you have big actors that are popular at the time and you throw them together um, to make them believable on screen, but they definitely do. By the time you get to the third act, you're smiling along with them at whatever's happening um, <laughs> without giving anything away. <laughs> so and that's even before we start to talk about supporting roles like De Niro and so forth so um, yeah it's De Niro of course but yeah I, I really enjoy it and I've watched it several times since and if it's on I'll watch it so that's always a good thing to say about a movie yeah for sure Christian Crabby Snacks and Hellmaids <laughs> <laughs> that's it that's my opinion no, uh, I I like this. I like this film a lot. Uh, not top five like Brett, but I believe it is somewhere in my top one hundred. It has to be mostly because it's one I can watch over and over again. I read the book. The book is not that good. It really it's doesn't not. prove a whole lot on this. Um, it's sort of should I say it kind of helped me deal with things personally sort of like same yeah no, sort same. of understanding like if i have my little mood swings why they can get so i'll say you know not violent like i'm gonna hit you but like i can yell um i understand pat a whole lot on like his possession with his wife and the fact that obviously he can't get back to her even though he thinks that and other people around him are like you need to think about other things get over it they're not obviously saying get over it. They're trying to help him. He doesn't want the help. Um, for a little bit, I've been denying how much I do like this film, but oh my God, it's just, it's so good. It's so easy to watch. I like Jennifer Lawrence a lot in this. I love Bradley Cooper a lot in this. There's times where it's like, Daniel Day-Lewis, I know you won, but <laughs> sometimes Bradley's really great too in his own humanistic way. I think that's what that's another reason why him not winning for a star is born hurt so much is because like I saw him in silver linings playbook and I'm like, how does he yeah. top this? Like, this is phenomenal. And then he did it and they complete, they gave it to Rami Malik. And so but like, you also can't like, I can't say like Bradley Cooper should have won in 2012 because you had yeah. Lincoln. Right. So. Any other year you could see him winning it. Yeah. And there's a lot of people too, who don't think that Jennifer Lawrence looking back should have won. And I mean, I, I think she should have won. Yeah. I, um, who else was nominated that year? You had Jessica Chastain for zero dark 30, uh, Emmanuel Riva for Amor, as we mentioned, uh, Naomi Watson, the impossible, uh, Mm -hmm. And so, Kubinjane. Yeah, and Kubinjane. So 
I, I don't see any other better performances that year from the Oscar group of movies to say that mm-hmm. she shouldn't have won. Yeah. I, I mean, I think of, I mean, we hate to do this, but it is a comparison game. That's how the Oscars work. I hate to compare so many great performances, but for me, it's like, you know, I, I, I don't recall many other performances that I've seen that are quite like what Jennifer Lawrence mm-hmm. does here. Keep in mind, she was 22 and this is made. And yet I feel like there's just as an actress, she shows so much more maturity and presence um, than I would expect from a 22 year old who had just made the Hunger Games. I was just about to say she had another movie that year that uh, served her well as well. And she yeah, already had exactly. a Best Actress nomination under her belt. Mm-hmm. Yep. Winter's Bone. Yeah. By the time she got to this uh, movie, she already had some good roles that really prepared her for this. I mean, yeah, you had probably one of my better, uh, one of my more favorite X-Men movies in first class the year before. Yeah. But Winter's Bone uh, really exposed her to that level, that Oscar nominated mm-hmm. level of performance that, you know, and not to say she was a veteran at 22, but you, you kind of saw her star on the rise and you could anticipate that it was just a matter of time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't understate no matter what you think about J law, like for those, like for those, I don't know, five or six years there, like there was nobody bigger. And this was like part of that reaffirmation that yes, she's a huge box office star. She's also a very talented actress. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, she was, I mean, she was one during that time where like I went to a movie just because she was in it, you know? And this is the biggest reason why. Um, Robert De Niro. I, I've always loved him in this performance. I had an even deeper appreciation this time. Um, I think the biggest scene that garnered him a nomination was where he is sitting on the bed with Pat and he kind of, he tears up. He says like, I'm sorry. I didn't spend enough time with you. He was not supposed to cry during that scene. Um, that was completely unexpected by everybody in the room. Hmm. And so I'm just glad he's in this movie because again, in the book, the dad character is like barely in it. Yeah. And he's like, he's great here. The scene with him and Tiffany where they're like going back and forth where he, at first he's like, you're the reason the Eagles are losing. And she's like, let me prove to you why I'm not. And then he's like, I fucking love you, Tiffany. Like (laughs) that is my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's their banter. They work the screenplay perfectly, which is pretty common throughout the entire movie. The Eagles. It's funny how there are some movies where there's a topic or a sub, some kind of subject matter that becomes almost a character itself. And in this case we have, their love affair for the Philadelphia Eagles and yes. all of their uh, little curses and, you know, superstitions about sitting down on a Sunday afternoon to watch some football. Yep. And don't I forget the crabby snacks and home hates. Oh, Jackie Weaver. Yes. I remember being a bit surprised that she got nominated. Yeah. Her nomination is um, interesting. But- yeah, I, I I do love her in this, um, but I, I was surprised by it. But it was a big deal because it was the first movie since 1981, I believe, to have 
acting nominations in all four categories, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, another scene that I love just because I love this movie so much that really, I think, touches on how they, I mean, this is a true dramedy, for lack of a better term, where it's very funny, very comedic, but also a drama at its center at times. The scene where they're comparing the drugs that they take at the dinner table. Where, like, she's like, what drugs are you on? Bradley Cooper's like, oh, I was on this and this. And she's like, oh, yeah, that one. That scene is hilarious. And they're covering such a heavy topic. And I think the film does a pretty nice job of, like, handling those topics and, like, realizing the severity of them, but also being very entertaining and funny as well. So it's kind of unique in that way. Obama called this film an elegant proof of God. I need to go back and see his (laughs) film reviews from this year. No, uh, I did Google, though, Silver Linings Playbook Obama, and it turns out the Weinstein Company had hired an Obama campaign advisor to try and get this movie some Oscars. Oof. So, yeah. Shady. Interesting. It did. But it worked. Uh, let's see. Brett, do you want to read us the noms and win? Yes. It got one win. For Best Actress, Jennifer Lawrence had seven additional nominations. Best Picture, Director for David O. Russell, who does know how to use close-ups and does it quite well in this The Shade. Um, Yes. Best Actor, Bradley Cooper. Supporting Actress, Jackie Weaver. Supporting Actor, Robert De Niro. Adapted Screenplay. And Best Film Editing, which I would probably say is the most underrated aspect of the movie as well. Pretty significant box office hit i remember there being a controversy because this like won a bunch of independent spirit awards and there was controversy about whether you could consider it an independent Mm -hmm. film so it was made for pretty cheap but it was also like a huge hit as well well it was put out by the weinstein company so that that's you know that's borderline independent by 2012 true once you start like shrinking your name down to initials, you're, you're not independent anymore. That's true. Um, J-Law, Jennifer Lawrence's second youngest Best Actress winner. Interesting point I found. It was originally supposed to star Vince Vaughn and Zoe Deschanel. Now, I can really see Zoe Deschanel. I could see that Vince Vaughn. I, I, I'm glad that didn't happen. Let's just, you just be stammering a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see this film being the success that it is with those stars no. in those roles. No. You say also Anne Hathaway originally cast in the lean role. Mm. Mm-hmm. I've read too somewhere Angelina Jolie was a big thing. Ooh, int- ooh. that's not bad on yes. her. I just don't see it. You know? Yeah, I don't see it. What's the Russian title of this? Please, oh my god! My favorite fun fact ever. The Russian title is My Boyfriend is a Psycho. If I had a nickel for every time somebody's described that about me, my god, I'd have a quarter. <laughs> 30 cents now. Oh, man. Yeah, Silver Linings Playbook. I love it. Please watch it and then watch it again. That's all it's I have a, to say. Like we said about Django earlier, it's a fun film. Oddly yeah, enough. Really All right. Anything else on Silver Linings before we get to our last nominee before our winner? That's all I got. All righty. 
Next up, we have Zero Dark Thirty. A film in which Obama called an elegant proof of God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Jesus. Um, Anyway, directed by Catherine Bigelow, who won in um, the 2009 awards for The Hurt Locker. This is about the the quote-unquote manhunt for Osama bin Laden. Um, It follows a fictional CIA operative named Maya, who is played by Jessica Chastain. And she is basically brought in um, and tasked with, you know, helping to find out where Osama bin Laden is hiding. We see her sit in on, like, torture rooms using torturous interrogation tactics. Very controversial for that reason. We see her doing office work. We see her cooperating with others, usually ignorant men who don't listen to her. And eventually, I mean, spoiler alert, um, unless you're a conspiracy theorist, they do hunt down and kill Osama bin Laden. They what? His compound. <laughs> they got UBL. Yeah. Um, this That happened in May of 2011. So, I mean, this was a pretty quick turnaround to release this film a little over a year later. Written by Mark Bull, who won the Oscar for The Hurt Locker as well. Um... I, I really don't know what else to go into it plot wise. It's basically it follows Maya's steps. Um, interesting use of her character, not just centered on the plot of finding Bin Laden, but also an interesting character study um, and really cool use of a lead female character in this film. I thought. So, thoughts. I will say that this was in development before um, Bin Laden was killed. It was going to be no more. Kidding. Yes, it was going to be more of the hunt for him immediately after 9-11. And then once he got killed, they had to totally obviously switch the plot because they're like, oh my god, we have a bigger thing going on right now. Um Interesting. I'll never forget the president interrupted this one show called The Apprentice to announce to the world Osama bin Laden was dead. <laughs> History was forever changed that day. Anyway, no. Um I saw this uh, couple months after it came out on dvd i didn't remember it so i rewatched it in april forgetting that we were doing this podcast so i've seen it this year again like i've been saying good movie um not great i i think it's really super long and a lot of it drags because it's literally interrogation after interrogation until you get to like that final moment where it's like we know where he is we're going to do this thing. Enter Chris Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> like in this movie. But no, and I think that the actual killing scene itself is really, really good. Really well done by Catherine oh, Bigelow, yeah. um, who I know was controversial. She didn't get a nomination for this. Um, I think she should have more on that later. You mm-hmm. have here controversial depictions of torture. Yeah, they show you torture all right in this. They very much so do. But no, it's a good movie. It's hard to watch only because the plot of it is, like I said, it drags very much. Jessica Chastain is a goddess, though, in this. Yeah. Yeah, she is very good. She is. And she knows who this Maya woman is because we don't know who she is. Jessica Chastain feels like 
I mean, obviously we need to get Amy Adams and Jake Gyllenhaal their Oscars, right? But she'd be a pretty good candidate for after that of someone who feels pretty overdue by this yeah. point. This was her second nomination in a row. She was nominated for The Help. Um, and just really, just a really fierce performance. It's so easy to like be on her side. And she's such a badass too. Yeah, she has a way of like, there are actors who get into their character beyond the script. Mm -hmm. So she's the kind of person I could picture creating backstory for her character beyond what's told in the screenplay. And I think that's what really rounds out her characters um, here as an intelligence analyst. You, you get to see kind of like a character arc for her that is not necessarily, you know, written down in words, but acted out in a great performance. Um, the thing about this movie that got, for me, it was so well shot. Same thing with The Hurt Locker. So well shot um, by Bigelow. And you, you basically surround the main character with other great actors who turn around and give strong performances themselves. Mark Strong being one of them. Um, just, yeah. Um, Duplass, Mark Duplass. Jennifer um, Ely. Yeah. And you see, we could just keep naming them because it's almost like they come in in little vignettes and do their strong scene. Uh, James Galdafini, I just thought oh, of another one. Yeah as the CIA director. And it's like they come in, they do their little cameo, create a scene, and then they bounce. And it just makes the film really well done. But I'm, I'm with Christian. Cut 20 minutes off of this thing, and it's mm -hmm. so much better. Yeah, Focus more on that third act, which I, I understand they really had to like add on to the writing to get to that at the end. But that really is where the film shines as far as acts. It's really the third act when they bring in the Navy team, uh, team SEAL Team 6, and they go about the mission. Um, other than that, you just had the character development of Maya and the stuff that I didn't like about it, which was the, the torture scenes and even the use of the 9-11 uh, recordings, you know, I, I could see the problems that people have with this movie, but you know, it it really adds to it, but also takes away from it simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, like when I first saw this as a senior high school, I thought there was so much going on. Really, when you get to the bare bones of like the leaves they're covering, it's really like not that much is presented. Um, as far as like where their leads are, like she pretty much sticks with the lead throughout the entire film. And most of it is not so much like making huge new discoveries as we go along, but like convincing the others to believe what she's saying, which I think is really important to display, but you could also, you know, it gets a little repetitive and you could also cut some time off to make it more intriguing and flow a little better too. Well, you have to know too, that like the CIA had a hand in making this film right. too. And they're not going to, like, let you just say anything. Oh, yeah. And they're not going to make you be like, all right, here's some stuff that they don't want you to know. They're going to be like, whoa, shit, you need to cut that. Yeah. I mean, I, I get, like, there's so much they're limited in what they can say. You just don't have to tell it to me five times. 
you know. Well, that's just like I remember, like I remember too, when Jessica Chastain was doing interviews for this, she mentioned she did meet Maya, but obviously her name is not Maya, and she's never going to reveal her identity because she can't. Mm -hmm. But I would think with all that and the things that they had to cut would have made it a stronger edited movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, they're not going to reveal everything. But, yeah, about 20 minutes shorter, tighter movie would have been better. You know, maybe up your ratings a half star if needed be. Yeah. Katie, you mentioned the way it's shot, and that would be my biggest calling card for the film and particularly for Bigelow that would that basically earns her a nomination for me because that it just feels so real like I feel like I'm there and this is what it would look like and what would happen and the tension of it too especially yes. in the third act which can we just talk for a few minutes about the non-nomination because I I just think that uh I for a certain director of Argo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's our last film. So go ahead. I, I think out of all the years recently, the choices of nominating for directors was uh, kind of short by two people in this case. Um, well, before we even get into Argo, I, I think Bigelow does a job here that would have earned a nomination. Mm -hmm. Why was she not nominated? Let's explore that a little bit. Yeah. I hope it wasn't like, oh, we nominated her a few years ago. She doesn't really need it again. Yeah. You know, I hope it wasn't that situation. Which now, well, no. Still holding on to my Ang Lee thing for the Argo discussion. <laughs> but it's along the lines of this conversation. Well, you have the thing that she doesn't do, like she's not a, a directing machine where she's putting out a new movie every two to three years. Right. So, I mean, you had four years since The Hurt Locker and her getting the Academy then. So were they thinking it's kind of like more of the same, just, you know, different location? Um, I don't know what it was, but I really felt like her nomination was missing here. Yeah. I remember reading articles at the time that was like Academy members just thought that everybody else was going to nominate them. So they went for people like Ben Zeitlin, who they didn't think would have much chance in the boost. I understand that argument for Ben Affleck because he was winning best director left and right. I mean, every freaking priest cursor he was winning. Not so much the case for Catherine Bigelow. I mean, she's being nominated, I think a lot, but I really, I really, let's just say, and we'll get into this more with Argo. I can come up for more solutions for why Ben Affleck wasn't nominated than I can for Catherine Bigelow. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I think they're in the same boat as far as um, really good films. I mean, Hurt Locker to me was better than Zero Dark Thirty. But in comparison to the other people who were nominated, they, could, they both could have been in there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. This did have one win for sound editing, which it tied with Skyfall. That was presented by Mark Wahlberg and Ted the Bear. Could you could you imagine winning your Oscar with like a CGI bear? <laughs> like how embarrassing. Oh man. All my life's work. <laughs> for this moment. For this moment. 
Uh, four nominations for Best Picture, Jessica Chastain for Best Actress, Best Original Screenplay for Mark Bull, and Best Film Editing. And I've always thought this was maybe, if not the most, one of the most highly rated films in terms of critic reviews. I mean, really high Metacritic scores, a lot of 95 critics top 10 lists, at least, um, major critics. And so, despite the controversy... Yeah. Anything else on Zero Dark Thirty? Obama called it my greatest achievement in my presidency. <laughs> I do remember his speech pretty uh, vividly, honestly, that night. So I remember getting upset he interrupted The Apprentice that night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have reached our final Best Picture nominee, and our winner. And the Oscar goes to... Take it away, Michelle Obama. Argo. Congratulations. That sounded... That sounded... <laughs> if you watch that video, it sounds so scripted. Oh, yeah, totally. Yes, Argo. Ben Affleck's third directorial feature, um, which basically won nearly every major precursor, if not all of them. Um, this was not a surprise win. It is the quote-unquote declassified true story of CIA operative Tony Mendez. It takes place during the um, what we refer to here in America as the Iran hostage crisis, um, right after the political revolution in Iran, um, where the Shah there was ousted from office um, by revolutionaries and was actually given asylum um, to live his last days in the U.S. because he was dying of cancer. Um, Iranian revolutionaries did not take lightly of this, and so they stormed the U.S. embassy, took a lot of hostages. Uh, but there were six individuals who worked there who actually escaped to the house of the Canadian um, ambassador to Iran. And so the CIA finds out, and they say, we got to find a way to get these six people out. Enter... Tony Mendez, played by Ben Affleck, um, who is tasked with coming up with this idea. And what he comes up with is to basically pretend they are making a Hollywood movie, um, the fake movie that is titled Argo, the space adventure, um, in line with like Star Wars and everything else that was happening around that time. This takes place in 7980. And so he contacts John Chambers, who is the actual um, makeup director for Planet of the Apes, as well as Lester Siegel, who is a fictional film producer for the film, and they help him craft this story. So these six individuals are going to be part of this movie crew. They're going to tour some locations around Iran and then try to escape by airplane before um, the people in charge find out who they are. They're posing as Canadians so that they can do this. I won't reveal how it ends. You should check out the movie because it's very suspenseful. Um, but what were your thoughts on this movie? I'm waiting for Christian to say the line. Argo, fuck yourself. There you go. <laughs> I mean, all right. when I first saw this, I was like, wow, this movie's amazing. It's so cool. And then like, watching it for this, my opinion totally changed. I'm like, it's okay. The tension's good. The rest of it's eh. Um, you'll see when we discuss in the next 
episode of our personal nominations and whatnot, but I don't know. I'm not as excited about it as I am anymore. And I don't know what that is. I think anybody could have directed this into my angly conversation that I've been holding off. I really hope that... People don't think just like, here, just give it to Ang Lee since Ben won. Because I think Ang Lee deserved this win over Ben Affleck. Sure, let little Ben get his nomination, but win, eh, it's alright. It's an alright direction, but it's nothing to like write home about. And literally, as I say for a lot of movies, anybody could have directed this. Yeah, um, I, I think the thing, I think the thing about it that it makes you go eh is it's a good movie it's but it's one of those movies like i said this about a lot of the oscar nominated movies for this year it's well done but not something you're gonna watch time and time again so the first time you watch it the first two times you watch it you you see all the greatness of it it's good um great acting um like you said the direction I wouldn't be able to do it, but um, having been in there, I guess that was good enough. But I think to be able to display the intensity and the heightened state of the story was well done. But you lose that intensity the more you watch it. It's like it's like chewing gum. It's like the longer you chew it, it starts to lose its flavor. So I there are certain movies that don't have a high rewatchability, and this is one of them. I would I would recommend it to anyone to watch and say, "Hey, this is a good movie," but it's going to be a one time, or maybe a rewatch once, and that's it. Yeah, I remember seeing this in theaters. I think it was the third week that it was out, and it was in our local AMC in the one of the front theaters, which is one of the bigger theaters that fit over four hundred people. And it was nearly sold out. Like, this is a well-publicized uh, film. Like, everybody wanted to see it in this town. Yeah, a lot of people saw it. I, I, I think what y'all said so far puts you more in the majority in terms of reception of this film that I've seen. I think it's definitely not as well-received now as it was when it won Best Picture. And honestly, I think Best Picture has hurt it more than anything. Um, I am an Argo defender, not going to lie. I will push back a little bit on the uh, directing thing. I think Ben Affleck is a pretty talented director. And what really got me here is that it was so clear to see that he was making choices when he made this. In terms of like the intensity, in terms of the footage he uses, when is he using like actual filmed footage and when is he using like archival footage it's the way he opens the film with explaining things to us that is not really boring it's like a five minute intro that tells us what we need to know in like an animated form it's kind of cool in that way which i will say oliver stone did the same thing in jfk well i mean directors take things from other people all the time i mean you know i I guess it's not so much that I think it's something new, but it's that he could have decided to do it a much, much worse way. Yeah. I guess, or a much more basic way. But do you agree with our uh, rewatchability uh, theory that it gets like, like, eh? 
I, 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 I keep thinking of chewing gum. <laughs> I agree a little bit with your chewing gum sentiment, but I think the film is actually very rewatchable. Um, for me, it feels like a very short film. Like it's right around two hours long and I'm not saying it should be any longer. I think it's the right length. I don't feel like I've spent much time watching this movie when I watch it. Um, I've probably seen it three or four times now. Um, that means that I took a pretty big gap from this time and the last time I watched it. I, I don't know. I, I think a big thing about this film that's unlike the other films that we've seen that might turn some people off is that there's not a great, like the acting is really good, but there's not one performance in this that you can latch onto and say that's some phenomenal acting. I mean, Alan Arkin got a nomination for it. I'm not going to lie. That's the screenplay. He had the best lines in the movie, you know, and he delivered them the way he always does. Not that it's not a good performance, but like when you have lines like, did you actually know Warren Beatty? Oh yeah. I took a piss next to him at the golden globes. Like he had the best lines. And so I don't know. I, I actually think the screenplay is pretty good, really good. And I really, I, I think, I think the direction is really good too. Um, I get where it comes from where like anybody could have directed this. Um, I totally get that. But I also think that there is something that Affleck brings to it. Not that others couldn't do, but that makes it excel beyond what it could have been, I guess. My biggest problem with this film, if anything, is the historical inaccuracies. Um, you know, there, this, there's a lot of this. They really minimize the role of Canadians. It's really like they really make the CIA look like really good guys here when we know that they're not most of the time. Um, and some other things going on there, too. And then again, I think like that happens all the time in movies. Not that it's okay, but I feel like Argo gets far more criticisms of it than some other films that might've come out this year that maybe didn't have the perfect historical and accuracy. Um, and I think that's partially a result of it winning best picture over some of those other films too. You're convincing me. I don't know. That's just my perception of it. I thought that I was going to, is going to wear off a lot more for me on this watch, but I, what can I say? I enjoyed it. It was fun. The Argo apologists. Yeah. So that's my bold take. It's a weird thing to like have a bold take of like defending a best picture winner, but there you go. Would you like to read us the wins and the noms? Yes. Let me pull those up real quick. Uh, of course this did win for, Best Picture. It also won for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Film Editing. I actually think the film editing is really good here too. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Alan Arkin, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, and Original Score. Based on the book by Tony Mendez, of course, as well as a couple articles. Let's talk a little bit about Ben Affleck not getting in for Best Director. Um, only the fourth time that a film has won Best Picture without having that director nomination. So what are your biggest theories for why this happened? Christian? They forgot. <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of understand what you were saying earlier, where it's like, well, we kind of figure he's getting in. Let's not 
I think they do high. They don't they do like the thing like rank it one two three four five or like stuff like that. I don't know if they do for nominations or not. It, yeah, it's, it, it feels like that though. It's like yeah, we know he's probably gonna get in, so let's pick somebody else. Everybody else will pick him. Let's be creative. I don't know. It was the biggest snub for me, mostly because I had seen it. I didn't see Zero Dark Thirty, so Catherine Bigelow's was like, mm. it was the Ben Affleck one that was like, oh my god, mm-hmm. and then. Quite literally, the day of nominations, the Critics' Choice Awards came around. He won Best Director. First thing he said was, I'd like to thank the Academy. (laughs) Of course, he got like the biggest laugh that night. So He also said, when people approached him about it, he said, I mean, I also didn't get the acting nomination and no one's saying I got snubbed there. Obviously, humorously, like he wasn't serious. but A self-read. Well, just speaking to that, I think a lot of times when you have actors who decide to go into production and definitely more toward direction, it's always second-guessed. And, you know, it could be Clooney, it could be him both being involved with this movie. Um, There's always some type of second-guessing of them being behind the camera and having direction over an entire motion picture like this. And, you know, we're, we're going back and forth saying anyone could have directed this. And I think that sentiment is more shared by a majority of people. So even though critics may have felt that and foreign press may have felt that when it comes to the inner circle of the Academy, it's not shared because they're more thinking along the lines. Well, here's another actor trying to direct the film. Which is still like... I, I, I've always thought that too, but then I think he won the DGA, and that's like a very similar base. That's a prestige, right? That's a prestigious award for the director. That and the the people who are voting for the DGA are mostly people who vote for the Oscars. Famous just that's did that thing that we're guilt. talking about. It's like we figure everybody else will do it. Let's do some of these lesser known people. Yeah. Twenty twelve was a rough year. <laughs> That's what I'll just keep saying. It was a rough year as far as like this type of uh, motion pictures and figuring out who's nominated for what. Because you could either have landslides like Anne Hathaway across the board or Argo for Best Picture or whatever. But then you have all these shifting pieces in between it. And it's like, eh, you want to get in some independent darlings, but you don't want to miss out on people who you just assume will win. And this could have been one of those assumptions where too many people made the wrong assumption. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's funny, this this was not, this this snub was not just noted among like people who are prognosticators and predictors. I mean, filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino, the host, Seth MacFarlane, and such an unfortunate coincidence bradley cooper um very <laughs> noted how much of a snub it was and we have him last year with the stars born which was not as egregious but um kind of similar with that like you said kb actor turned director who loses out on a surefire nomination anything else on argo a final film for your first mention roger ebert's number one film of the year was r.i.p roger oh, miss him so much 
Okay. Are we ready to move on to our best picture rankings for the year? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anybody want to volunteer to start? I will. Go for it. Okay. Number nine, Les Miserables. Number eight, I'm going to put my camera on you guys so I can see reactions. Argo. Damn, Argo, fuck yourself. All right, numbers, yes, it's number eight, Argo, the best picture winner. Number seven, Beast of the Southern Wild. Number six, Zero Dark Thirty. Number five, Amor. Number four, Django Unchained. Number three, Lincoln. Number two, Silver Linings Playbook. And number one, Life Opi. All right. Let me just say, I think this is the, in our time doing this podcast this is the lowest i've rated a best picture winner is it not i think it is interesting okay very interesting all right kb what do you got uh for me i have at number nine beast of the southern wild uh at number eight i have les mis at number seven i have django unchained at number six, I have Zero Dark Thirty. At five, I have Amour. At four, I have Lincoln. At three, I have Argo. At number two, I have Life of Pi. And number one is Silver Linings Playbook, despite the way I originally saw it. Yes. Love it. Argo's a little too high. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going off of the first time I seen it, and that's how it ranked. Mm. If I'm looking over a lifetime, yeah, it would drop down. Okay. All right. Number nine, Les Miserables. Number eight, Life of Pi. This list is invalid. <laughs> I see where we have our differences. <laughs> Number seven, Zero Dark Thirty. Number six, Lincoln. Number five, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Number four, Argo. Number three, Django. Number two, Amor. And number one, of course, Silver Linings Playbook. So I see some things here. We all hated Les Mis. We all love Silver Linings Playbook. That we can agree on. Pretty much. You know, I will say this year, I think, has been portrayed often as kind of a weak year for best picture nominees maybe it's like recent nostalgia for me but i actually think it's pretty good if you take les miserables like life of pi like i said it was a four-star movie for me but Mm -hmm. that's how the cookie crumbles so in the big question of which picture was best i mean pretty spread i mean there's just three of us but spread across the board here (laughs) well you know if Christian, if you were voting today, you would go with Life of Pi, obviously. So would. And Silver Linings Playbook, like I said, one of my all-time favorites. So my answer would be Silver Linings. Interesting. Okay. Um, so as always, this is a longer episode because we had nine nominations to cover. But um, this is a lot of fun. Be sure to tune in to our upcoming episode where we'll cover four more films from this year because we like to realize that the Academy often leaves some pretty great films out when they do their nominations. We have a few of those to talk about. 
um, be sure to follow us uh, at Gilded Films on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Um, be sure to check out the website, gildedfilms.com. Like we mentioned, we do have some recent reviews up, as well as our film ratings, which is something new that we're doing from our previous episodes. So you can see which ratings we gave each film. A couple other things. Um, I want to thank Joshua Arnoldi once again for doing our theme song. Be sure to um, rate us, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We can get it pushed up there. And of course, once again, more than anything else, I want to thank KB and Christian for joining me once again. This is fun as always. Can I come back? Of course. Cool. Okay. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. And we are signing off. Au revoir.